So in the early days, nobody ordered it, right? <laughs> That's the truth, not a single soul. You know, one of the challenges with liquor versus other categories is people are very habit-driven, right? You're a kettle guy, I drink, you know, Jack Daniels, whatever it is. Most people don't walk up to a bar and go, oh, what do you have, right? Versus you walk into a 7-Eleven, you might go to the cold box and you go, oh, what is that, right? And it's $1.99, you say, hey, I'm gonna try that today. Whether it's sports, college, or work at Goldman Sachs, Carter Ream and his brother Courtney have always had a tendency to do things together. But it's still pretty surprising that the two Midwestern guys managed to start a company together selling specialty alcohol, make millions of dollars selling it, and now coach and invest in other entrepreneurs. They've written a book about it, together, of course. Shortcut Your Startup is available January 16th and tries to turn conventional business advice on its head. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Happy New Year. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but Overcast, Stitcher, Google Play, I could go on and on. Mainly, I want you to subscribe whichever app you choose so we can keep this thing going automatically. The Ream brothers don't have a rags-to-riches story. They grew up outside Chicago with a dad who was CEO of a manufacturing company and a mom who had an MBA from Columbia. It is a story of teamwork, invention, and the guts to abandon what's comfortable but in careers in finance at Goldman Sachs, to pursue something potentially great. And I think that makes it a perfect story for the start of a new year. Here's Carter Ream. So, yeah, so I, I absolutely loved finance and, and was pretty good at it. You know, I had the slicked back hair, the power ties. I mean, I really kind of blended into the role. The Blackberry. Uh, exactly, the Blackberry. On the holster. On the holster. I actually gave a speech uh, for Tony Shea at Zappos a few years ago. And it was uh, because of our liquor company had kind of a do good, do well bent. Uh, I was kind of lovingly from douchebag to do gooder. And I started this speech with the Blackberry on the holster outside of the jeans, where you kind of roll it up, flick it a few times, look around, make sure everyone knew you were an investment banker, and then put it back in its holster. So uh, those, those old habits die hard. Um, so I absolutely loved Goldman. Uh, I ended up being on the deal team that took KKR public. So at the time, it was the first private equity firm to ever go public. One of those kind of landmark deals that I worked on nonstop for two years. Uh, my brother worked um, in consumer products and did deals for Procter and Gamble and Gillette, uh, Pernod Ricard, uh, Allied Demec, uh, Vitamin Water, and then really got inspired by Kevin Plank from Under Armour. And uh, if you think about Kevin at the time, he was early 30s. Here's a guy who was a former football player in Maryland, about to IPO a billion dollar company that quite honestly at the time you kind of heard of but didn't totally know of. Yeah. Um, again, now everyone goes, well, of course you're an entrepreneur, right? Everybody's an entrepreneur. Again, 10 years ago, there weren't many guys that, that looked and acted like Kevin Plank that were entrepreneurs. Um, and so my brother was on that deal team and I think he just kind of sat, sat across from him you know, when, when, the, when the partner would let him join the meeting and kind of go, I don't know, that guy kind of looks like me, he talks like me. I don't know if I can do it, but if he can, I might as well give it a shot. Um, and so my brother was really the impetus to kind of say, hey, I really don't like finance. I don't think it kind of, his, his thing was, he didn't think he used his total skill set and just thought it was kind of using part of his skill set. And so my brother actually took a third year at Goldman, lived in Australia and did it by design to come up with a bunch of different ideas. Uh, and one of them would be the alcohol brand we would later leave to do. Did you know that you were both going in on it from the beginning? 
No, absolutely not. I was, again, super hardcore finance. I had taken a job at a, at a large private equity firm out in uh, Los Angeles. And the way that works at the time, you, you get hired about a year in advance. Uh, you know, we kind of said, oh, Courtney's going to be Courtney. Obviously, that's my brother. And said, oh, he's going to go do something entrepreneurial. We all kind of shook our head at him and kind of said, you know, good luck. You have no money, no contacts, and no skills, as my dad reminded him many times when he decided he was going to leave Goldman. Um, and then we were traveling that summer when I rolled off of Goldman before I was moving to L.A. to work for this private equity firm. And I really honestly just kind of got sucked into it of something like a liquor brand is quite fun in the sense that you're kind of birthing a product, right? And so you're picking out names and package designs and what does the brand stand for and things like that. And uh, just very quickly kind of got sucked in. And um, we were kind of making a choice. We said, Courtney said to me at the time, well, why don't you go work in Oak Tree where I was going to go work for a few months and then you can jump ship. And, and I knew very well at the time that if I went, I was going and I mm -hmm. wasn't going to kind of do it for three months and jump back out. And I think that's one thing, obviously, a ton of entrepreneurs struggle with is there's never a good time to make the jump, right? I, I joke around, you have to be just young enough and just stupid enough to think it's a good idea to turn down the job I had. Um, and so right before I was about to go start there, kind of made the decision that, hey, let's kind of do this together and, and, uh, and kind of figure it out. So he goes on this three-year, a third-year thing yep. to come up with an idea, and he comes back with <laughs> what? So the two ideas that they came up with that the, were the most kind of formidable was uh, parking technology that you now see at Westfield and other shopping centers. So it's kind of parking bay technology that allows you to make the spots less diagonal and more squared off Then parking spots are tied to retail square footage. Um, and then this idea for the alcohol brand. At the time, like so parking or alcohol, parking or alcohol, drinking or driving. Exactly. We <laughs> we the only thing we knew for certain was the two had to be split right. in, in, in as different companies. Um, so he he did kind of weekly think tanks with a, a colleague of his at Goldman. That guy was Australian, and um, you know he kind of said, ah, "I want to stay in Australia. I think this parking technology will be great." My brother said, eh, I think I'm going to move to L.A. and do the liquor company. That sounds a little more fun. Uh, and they both kind of naturally, he went and did the parking technology, which ended up being very successful. Uh, and my brother came back to the States to do the liquor company. Huh. And what was, what was the idea behind the liquor company, though? Because so the, there's lots of liquor, yeah, yeah. liquor companies. Absolutely. I, look, I, uh, people always are expecting kind of all this market research. And I always am honest with people at 24, and, and he was 26. You kind of know what you know. You have some ideas and some insights and you just kind of go for it, right? I mean, even if you think about that was around 2006, the amount of information out there. I remember, you know, Googling America's best distilleries and we found two distilleries and we're trying to Skype them and call them, but there was nowhere near the plethora of information that's available now. Um, but, but the original impetus was at the time, big alcohol brands weren't incentivized to innovate, right? So they were incentivized to come out with a new flavor every year that just kind of filled their pipeline. They were able to push out a certain, you know, tens of thousands of cases, come back to the bottom line. Um, and so they would let people like us duke it out, come up with innovative products, um, and then buy you for a, you know, 10 to 12 times sales multiple. But the famous one right before we started was obviously Grey Goose getting sold for 12, 12x top line sales, and that kind of created this euphoria. And so at the, so. And why, why did Grey Goose get bought? 
the reason Grey Goose got bought is there's huge economies of scale for these for these large kind of multinational liquor companies. And so um, they can basically buy something at a very large top line sales multiple. Um, they immediately just right fire everything else from the original company, put it through their sales force, right? They can cut the cogs by about uh, two thirds. They can cut the distributor margin by about a third and they can just push their distribution out so much further. So to give perspective, when we sold our liquor brand as one of the kind of top sellers uh, of independent brands, we were probably in about 12,000 doors and Grey Goose is in 350,000 doors in the US and mm -hmm. a new flavor of Absolute will be in 150,000 doors within the first 90 days. And so they just have such scale and muscle um, because liquor in particular is very much dominated by you know four or five very large companies you have two large distributors in the country and you have retailers so you have a lot of gatekeepers along the way um so you really need the big guys and their muscle and you guys are going to break into that by yeah, exactly <laughs> so yeah exactly now i i wish we had talked before we went we <laughs> left our jobs and uh, started a liquor company i think the the idea that we saw and was so our original impetus was let's create an, a, an alcohol brand around this idea of a better way to drink. So it was supposed to be better ingredients, better type of cocktails, and then a better type of company. Our peers when we were launching were Blake from Tom's was one of our good friends, guys like the Warby guys, which we had invested in. And so we just thought there wasn't many brands out there that kind of spoke to us. Wait, you had already invested in? Uh, we ended up investing in Warby subsequently, okay. but I think we were seeing all these brands, right? If you think about 2006, 2007, it was just a moment in time where people were being more conscious, right? And mm -hmm. so um, being more mindful. And what we really said is the, the insights that we really had was one is we were obsessed with doing everything better, right? So when you work at a place like Goldman Sachs, you want to work really hard, and then you want to go have fun really hard, right? And so mm -hmm. you figure out how to do things better. And that was just a little bit our mentality. Um, and so, you know, we went through a phase in college, you know, when we were at Goldman where we'd go out drinking and then we'd come home and chug military grade Pedialyte, right? Because that was a better way to go out and have a few cocktails. Um, and so for us, and also you think about, you know, sour apple Smirnoff, it didn't really speak to us as a consumer. And so we just thought there was an opportunity to do something kind of that spoke to kind of our consumer set that kind of had ingredient something profile. Something higher end. Something higher end, but I think it's not just a price point thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's more of a, do I connect with this? Regardless of the price point of Smirnoff or Grey Goose, those brands don't connect to me, right? Grey Goose at the time, their marketing was all about golf and polo and boats and yachts. And I'm a 25 year old kid who can't even think about any of those things, right? And then Smirnoff is more is speaking to a certain demographic, right? And we said, could we speak to a premium millennial consumer that's obsessed with this idea of better, right? So we used to say the old days, and again, this was also a shift if you think about 2006, 2007, the world then adjusting in 2008, there was this shift from kind of a lot of brands going from best, right? So Grey Goose is a best brand, right? Again, Polo, Jets, things like this, to just trying to do things better, right? Again, I would argue Warby Parker, things like that are just a better eyewear company. And so our two things were better in terms of kind of a mindset and then being socially responsible we were 
kind of well aware that people weren't going to drink our brand because, you know, we gave 1% of our proceeds back to rainforest preservation, right? <laughs> that is not a reason to go have the cocktails. Uh, and you if we had any a, illusions about that, we quickly figured it out. A cocktail to a disadvantaged drinker for <laughs> a drink, that's not going to work. We tried. Yeah. We're like, look, you're planting trees. Like, have one more. Like, that's another tree that you're basically planting. Yeah, that's a lot. We, right. we very quickly realized that that was not on anyone's mindset when they were consuming cocktails. Um, but we did think it was important. We thought that was appealing to millennials. They were just starting to be more thoughtful at the time um, because, again, it was kind of reading the trends, I guess, at the time. And so you came up with? Vive. Vive. So, yep. And you called it Vive because? Oh, you're going to try to get into the what, what it was, the original idea. So originally, <laughs> uh, Vive stood for uh, vitamin-infused energy vodka. And so like all good ideas, the original idea and what we talk about or where it ended up is slightly different, right? And so right. I always talk to entrepreneurs a lot of, like we didn't have the perfect idea. We saw something, we thought we saw something and we thought we could kind of jump out and figure it out, which is what we did. So for example, the energy infused energy vodka, we very quickly realized that that was not gonna kind of fly. Um, but you had already done the logo. We'd already done the logo, so we exactly. So we very quickly regrouped. Luckily, that was part of the. I think in retrospect, our miss, our what I would change is, we said let's jump and then figure it out. I think a lot of times you see people now let's figure it out before I jump. So we did a little reverse, but it was also it was a difficult industry, right? There wasn't that much information out there, and until you really started talking to people in the trenches, you could only figure out so much from reading articles or reading on the internet. Part of it is you start to kind of socialize your idea with people, right? So one of the first people we met was a brand manager at Grey Goose. So someone had introduced us through an alumni network. And so we started talking to him about the idea. And he said, oh, have you seen the, you know, there's been quite a lot of backlash around caffeine-infused vodka. We're like, oh, what? Say, you know, and then you go and do it. And you're like, oh, shoot, that's probably not going to be a good idea. And so we kind of continued to evolve kind of the idea quite a bit. And settled on? Still calling it Vive, just not talking about the vitamin-infused energy vodka. The reason we liked the name was, uh, obviously, it's a palindrome, so mm -hmm. same backwards and forwards. Like and So you can remember it. Yep, exactly right. Um, and we thought, oddly, the name uh, kind of connoted all the things we wanted. It sounded kind of like full of life, like Viva, Vive in French, things like that. Um, and so then we uh, matched the logo to kind of fit that. So again, it kind of ended up kind of working out. Why did the company grow? You know, I think uh, in the early days, it was honestly just a lot of blocking and tackling. I don't, I don't think people can underestimate. I mean, we delivered it out of the back of our car for the first six or nine months, and it was my brother and I dropping off a case, having someone sign an invoice. In LA? Sitting on bar stools in LA. and. We, we did that as much as anything is we just really wanted to get in the weeds, right? We wanted to see, is it resonating with bartenders? What's resonating? What's not resonating? Is it resonating with consumers? Could we How buy a How do you even content? get people to pick yes. up <laughs> a new vodka? I mean... Yeah, that's, that's the biggest challenge, right? That's, that's the biggest challenge. I think uh, 
Well, you, what's interesting about something like an alcohol brand is you have two consumers in a way, right? You have, people, how did you, literally? Yeah, exactly, like, literally. You're so, just knocking on doors saying, hey. Literally I'm knocking on. So I've we first have to sell into the bars, right? So yeah. you first have to sell into bars and restaurants. That's your first customer. That's who you truly is your customer. And then you have to make consumers aware. So that's one of the challenges with the industry. So we literally kind of went door to door and, you know, we'd sit at a bar stool and we'd just kind of have a drink and hang out. And they'd be like, by the way, are you interested in hearing about a new brand today, right? And just kind of do the spring attack. So I think basically every night for the first six months, we sat on a bar stool, not drinking to drink, but drinking to talk to a bartender, drinking because we wanted to get into an account. And then it kind of shifted once we were in. So our initial plan was let's get into 25 accounts kind of the preeminent accounts in LA. We kind of did it by design because we wanted to map the journey of that specific consumer. So it's amazing in the early days, how many people came to us and said, man, I see your brand everywhere. And I said, you don't see our brand everywhere. It's just because I know where you go and you see it everywhere you go, right? But we were very thoughtful about that in terms of thinking about this consumer, they shop at this liquor store, then they go to this bar at this hotel, then they go to this restaurant. And for us, it was kind of trendy kind of hotspots. So, you, you get a bartender to pick up Vive. It's sitting there on the shelf. Why do people order it? So in the early days, nobody orders it, right? <laughs> That's the truth, not a single soul. You know, one of the challenges with liquor versus other categories is people are very habit-driven, right? You're a kettle guy, I drink, you know, Jack Daniels, whatever it is. You, most people don't walk up to a bar and go, oh, what do you have, right? Versus you walk into a 7-Eleven, you might go to the cold box and you go, oh, what is that, right? And it's $1.99. You say, hey, I'm going to try that today, right? Because you're making a statement at a bar to everybody around you exactly. about who you are based on what you drink. Exactly. Huge badge value, right? So when you think about liquor, it's like a car, right? Cars, liquor, the brands you wear, they say a lot about you. And so you're making a huge statement. I'm a kettle guy. Now everyone's a Tito's guy. Grey Goose guy was the guy that went golfing on his yacht or pretended like he had a yacht, that type of thing. <laughs> so that was the biggest challenge. And so what we quickly realized from sitting on bar stools was nobody was ever going to order this. I can literally still remember the first time someone ordered it that wasn't a family member. And I mean, my head was on a swivel. I was going, do we? Courtney, Courtney, do, do you know that girl? Do, do, he's like, I don't think I do. Or, you know, I remember the first time we were going to uh, Super Bowl in Dallas and uh, we were on Virgin America. And uh, some guy orders it off Virgin America, and, and I hear him talking to the girl next to him. He's like, you know, this was started by these two guys in L.A., and I'm, again, poking my brother. I think he's talking about us, you know. <laughs> so, but we very quickly realized nobody was going to order it, right? And, and you don't have the marketing dollars, especially in a, right, in a direct-to-consumer e-com kind of way. You can reach people in a much more targeted way. I have no idea who's going to walk into a bar and order it, right? Impossible to find that person. And so what we quickly realized was, our true customer or the true gatekeeper for us, I guess put another way, was the bartenders, hmm. right? And so we needed to get the bartenders excited about our product so that when you walked up to the bar, if you have that moment, moment of hesitation, when the bartender says, hey, what are you drinking today? And you're like, yeah. He goes, hey, you wanna try something new, right? That was the only way we were gonna get people to try it. And so we very quickly um, started sitting on bar stools once the product was in the first 25 accounts and started educating bartenders, started doing staff trainings. And for us, it was as much about telling them about the functional benefits of the product. Hey, it tastes good. It has, our vodka had acai in it, things like that. 
But as much as anything, it was kind of getting them to buy into this and, and kind of winning over their hearts as much as their minds, right? Because you needed them when you weren't there to go, hey, you know, you should try this. This is a great new product or put it in a cocktail or make it the specialty cocktail of the evening or something like that. Did you learn anything from that process that you translate to other businesses, investments that are looking to grow? Yeah, I mean, I think what we learned is there was no substitution for sitting on that kind of bar stool, right? But that bar stool, every business has a bar stool. Ours just happened to actually be a bar stool. When you think about it, you know, so much of it is, you know, in today's day of data, you can usually find the insights, right? And so when I'm, when I'm talking to a company on the investment side and they say, oh, my consumer is like a female millennial, I'm like, that not enough, right? Dig deeper, dig deeper, dig deeper. Is it, and why is she doing it? What are you solving in her life? And right, and so I think, when, what you see is in the old days, you kind of had linear growth, right? A company goes from two million in sales to four to eight. Now, for the first time, you see companies going from two million to 40 million to 100 million, right? If you think about it, Kevin Plank and Under Armour is famous for only taking, you know, 10 years to get to 100 million in sales. Mm-hmm. And I think the guys that do that, what they realize is slow, 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 sit on that bar stool, right? Look for those insights. Because once we find them, we can really kind of take off. And so it is a very different mindset. And so a lot of companies, I think, they're always so obsessed with driving sales. They don't realize that that's only part of the equation. What we say to people is, again, you're always trying to drive sales. In our case, we are trying to push cocktails and learn at the same time. If you do that, that's how you go from linear growth to kind of that exponential growth. Was there an inflection point? For us, um, I think there's a lot of inflection points along the way. Again, liquor is a very difficult industry because you have to match distribution with awareness. You have a lot of gatekeepers, and so. Did you, you get some huge account? Was there? Yeah, we got Walmart and CPK and all these. You know, every time you were like, "Man, we got into Walmart," and you think it's kind of that's the end of the game, and you realize that's honestly the easy part, right? Now you're like, "Oh shoot!" Now we got to get it off the shelf at Walmart, and now we got to open up 13 more states. And so, again, for us. The journey did not go like this. It went there and you kind of, I don't know about struggle, but you kind of hold there a little bit, then you get another boost. And so, for example, our first um, national account on premise was Ruby Tuesday. We got into 800 Ruby Tuesdays. That was a huge inflection point. We went from being in six markets, local bars, to 800 unit national account. So then all of a sudden, you know, we, we did a tour where we got into our Prius, took the same kind of hang out on your barstool mentality that, that served us well in the early days and visited something like 600 of the 800 Ruby Tuesdays. My brother covered, I think, 600 of those in four days, I think, in a Prius. We mapped it out using some efficiency software. And we would give everybody an acai bracelet and do a staff training on, on the brand. And then, you know, there's inflection points where we got into the largest grocery chain in California. And you realize you have to keep winning those battles because you get into Ruby Tuesday, then you can go talk to TGI Fridays or go talk to Disney. You get into the biggest grocery chain, it gives grocery chain, it allows you to go talk to Target or Walmart. And so again, it was always a win, followed by kind of a little tipping point, followed by you gotta get to the next win. So for us, it was always about kind of hitting different plateaus at different stages. Had you and your brother already learned how to fight? Uh, Fight hard in the trenches? I mean, with each other. Because <laughs> I imagine, you know, w- with any business partners, eventually there's some kind of conflict or yep. disagreement. <laughs> People say never go into business with family. Yeah. But clearly, you guys had been dealing with each other. You know, um, doing some of the same things as you said from grade school through college through Goldman, etc. Yeah. But 
at some point, there must have been some butting heads. Yeah, I call it healthy discussion is the term we <laughs> use. Uh, that's, that's the ultimate uh, euphemism. But, yeah, I think we uh, – our rules were never make it personal, right? So we would – argue we would disagree but we never made it personal so it was always about the decision or always about the business and then our second rule of thumb was whoever felt more strongly about it kind of won out so that is not a perfect system by the way they do not teach that at harvard business school but i think a little bit was by never making it personal it's ever him versus i it's disagreements of opinions Um, by whoever has the strongest opinion we kind of had that inherent trust and so we go Hey, if you feel more strongly about it, I got your back. Let's kind of do it. Um, And then I think what makes us good partners that I tell people a lot of times is a lot of times, right, people flock to a partner that's just like them, right? Our friends are just like us. You don't typically you don't have a friend that's totally different than you. It's because he's like you. He likes to go to the basketball game. He thinks like you. He likes to go to the same spots. And so people end up with these partners that are just like them. And then to me, you have this kind of butting heads constantly because they think alike, they act alike, they gravitate towards the same things. I think part of our success as partners is that we're very similar. We have this inherent trust because we're family. We never kind of doubt each other's motivations. We trust each other, right? Whether it's right or wrong, I think he's the only other guy as smart as I am, right? Which is clearly wrong, but it's kind of that familiar bond. Um, but we have very different skill sets and very complementary skill sets. And what happens as partners over time is that actually gets more and more efficient because like I like working in Excel and, and financial modeling. He used to know how to do that. Today, doesn't pretend like he doesn't know how to open up Excel, right? Because over time, those behaviors get exaggerated. So you actually become better partners because you each gravitate towards certain things um, and they become more and more complementary over time. Do you know each what the other is bad at? Yep, for sure. Uh, and I think that's the biggest challenge is like is being self-aware enough to kind of know. I think it's tough to critique your brother, right? Like, <laughs> I out think, loud. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> out loud. And, uh, and, and I think self-awareness is important because we're all going to have our blind spots. It's how do you cover them up or, or find ways to offset them, right? So if I'm really bad at X, I need to hire someone on my team that's really good at X, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm not aware I'm bad at X and I don't hire someone on the team that's good at like, that's when you get into a world of hurt. Uh, and I think that's, that's what's interesting about entrepreneurs these days. For the first time, you have to have really strong opinions, but being able to change the opinions, flip, pivot, somersault and then have strong opinions again right and so the old days there was this mentality of i'm just going to run hard fast i'm going to have an opinion i'm going to go now we live in this data-driven world too where you have to be like this is what we're doing you know you run out there and then you're like oh shoot nope nope we're going to change we're going to go take a left right and so when when we talk about on the investing side people talk about investing in people and all that I kind of drill down deeper than that, which is it's a very specific type of person. Um, and again, my brother and I have had to adapt quite a bit as partners and then also as kind of leaders to know, hey, this is what we're good at. Here's what we're not good at. And our obsession with is is never with what's doing what we think is the right choice, but like the right call, right? So again, we, we don't hold our opinions too preciously, but we're willing to kind of be really fervent about them and then kind of back off them pretty quickly. Did you guys both know when it was time to sell? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, 
Must have been a big number then. Uh, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it, it always makes you happy when that wire clears. I can still remember. I was in my lift. We're an investor in lift on my way to South by, and I was texting my brother, did it clear, did it clear. Um, I think for us, we kind of always, we had a North Star in our, in our head of we need to get here for it to be interesting to sell. And if we get there, we'll be able to sell for a good number. And uh, that's one thing we were right about. We were right about we had to get to a certain critical mass to be able to sell it. And then given all the gatekeepers and given the economies of scale in liquor, you just know that there's kind of diminishing returns on kind of getting it to that next plateau. Um, very difficult to do. Um, and so it was a clear decision that we, that we had to kind of sell to a, a big strategic. How much was it? Uh, we don't talk about that, but uh, enough that we bought some, you know, some toys uh, on, on the way out. So, uh, so it's good. What kinds of toys? Uh, the only thing I always joked around that I wanted uh, was ocean-facing rooms. I was tired of going to South Beach and having to look at the garden at the Delano. So I used to joke around. My dad, I really only need two things. I want to look at the ocean, uh, and we wanted a plane. So we bought a plane. You bought a plane. We bought a plane. What kind of plane did you buy? Uh, we bought an eight-seater. Pilatus, so uh, so it makes getting around on the West Coast a lot easier these days. Yeah, where do you go? Uh, the nice thing about LA is there's so much around, kind of three hours. So, you know, we'll pop up to San Francisco for work. We'll go skiing, Mexico, Napa, things like that. So nice. And you decided to invest. And we decided to invest. We had been investing along the way. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of using our success and kind of the rooms we had gotten in because of our liquor brand. Um, so we were investing along the way and then decided to kind of scale that up. So Tell me about the book. Uh, yeah, uh, the book's called Shortcut Your Startup. Um, we spent the kind of the last six months writing it and really what we think is interesting in today's day and age is that everything kind of has to be rethought about, right? The Even the ways we started our liquor company 10 years ago when someone say, how did you start? I go, I'll tell you. And some of the principles are the same, right? The, the concept of we talk about sitting on your bar stool or finding your uh, farmer's market. We don't actually meet your farmer's market all the time, but you kind of have to find that farmer's market when you get feedback from customers, things like that. Mm. Those things still apply, but everything else is different, right? And, and even one of the things we struggled with quite a bit on the book is how to give advice of what we would do sitting here today, knowing certain of the advice will be dated 18 months from now or 24 months from now because the world we live in kind of moves so quickly. So we kind of take 10 traditional business adages, flip them on their head and talk about kind of how we would think about it differently in today's day and age, whether you're staying, starting a Etsy business out of your house or starting you know, a tech company and everything in between. People don't become famous writing books like they used to, right? <laughs> yeah. Some people view them as more of a branding event. Why did you guys write this book? Yeah, I think twofold. I think one, it gives us, uh, one of the things we learned from Viv, if I'm being totally honest, is that it was a great currency for us, right? And so I talk about currency businesses, right? So I have a friend who has a magazine that, that writes on CEOs. And I said, why the heck do you have a magazine that writes on CEOs? You're a smart guy. He goes, get to meet CEOs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get to meet CEOs every day. He said, I have yet to call a CEO and say, hey, this is John. I'm calling from such and such magazine. Would you like to be on the cover and have anyone say no? And then I get to go spend three hours with them. We know incredible people. And people are always like, we were a case study in Richard Branson's last book. People are always like, well, how did you get in Richard Branson's book? How do you know him? And they're waiting for this grand story of how, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, the book released before. He needed liquor. We decided to sponsor his party. We got to know him. And fast forward to his next book, 
we were a case study along with Tom Shoes and Seventh Generation and some great brands. And so one of the things is we always try to find opportunities or currencies to let ourselves have interesting conversations, whether it's with people like yourself sitting here or one of our launch partners is WeWork and Microsoft and that type of thing. So I think part of it was selfishly just to kind of continue to be in the ebbs and flows and have interesting conversations because it always leads to good things. And I don't think you can underestimate how valuable it is to kind of be in those conversations or be in those crosshairs. And then I think the second part of it is kind of empowering the next generation of entrepreneurs. The good news is there's a ton of information out there. The bad news is there's a ton of information, right? And everyone has opinion on how to start a business or how to be an entrepreneur. And we try to take everything that we had been taught over the years and distill it into a very digestible format where, you know, chapter one starts from, we, we do what we call the entrepreneur readiness test. We basically try to talk you out of being an entrepreneur. We say, you know, you have a greater odds of making the MBA than you do of being a successful entrepreneur. You know, you're not going to get health benefits. You're going to work your butt off. You're going to think about this. Do you really believe that, though? Or are there just so many (laughs) bad people trying to be entrepreneurs that they create what looks like bad odds? Like, yeah, I I I wonder. Yeah, that's a good thing. Well, don't well, don't blow it up. That's chapter one and the book's printed. So we can't go back on it. No, I think, look, we live in a society where everyone kind of holds up the winners and kind of makes them so glamorous, right? You talk about Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and these successful guys. And mm. I think it's more about, it. for 99.9% of us, we're never going to be on the cover of Time Inc. I am never most likely going to be, well, 50, but probably never <laughs> going to be on the cover of Time Inc. in all seriousness, right? And so I think part of it is it's really easy to kind of look at it as, hey, it's easy, that guy can do it, I can do it, or I get to work from home, I get flexible work schedule. <laughs> and it's just part of the making sure people are aware that like all those things are true, all those things are not that easy, right? Working from home is not that much fun. And for certain people, I think they just need to be aware that going to work at a big corporation and maybe being entrepreneurial within that corporation is a better outcome than taking a lot of risk, right? And, and so I think it's just the balance of you take a lot of risk to end up like Mark Zuckerberg. And as long as you kind of know what you're getting into and as long as you're willing to take the risk, um, it's more about that because I just think there's a lot of misconceptions about being an entrepreneur and how it might be easy. And again, it takes a certain mentality and it is far from easy. People think that, really. Exactly. (laughs) I get told all the time that it's easy, I think. Really? I think, you know, everyone's got a friend who's an entrepreneur now or someone that's made a bunch of money doing tech. It's just, it's like a game of telephone, right? And, and mm. so I think, and no entrepreneur will tell you it's easy. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> to clarify, no entrepreneur thinks it easy. Anyone who's doing something non-entrepreneurial, I think underestimates how, how darn hard it is. My thanks to Carter Reed. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, etc. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook or Twitter and search for John Fort, J-O-N-F-O-R-T-T, and you'll figure out what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com, and 
As always, thank you for lending an ear.